Section 27 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Siena Early and Late, Part 2. Here in Siena are a couple of dozen scattered frescoes and three or four canvases, Sodomer's masterpiece, among others, an harmonious descent from the cross. I wouldn't give a fig for the equilibrium of the figures or the ladders, but while it lasts, the scene is all intensely solemn and graceful and sweet, too sweet for so bitter a subject. Sodomer's women are strangely sweet, an imaginative sense of morbid, appealing attitude, as notably in the sentimental or pathetic, but the nonetheless pleasant, swooning of St. Catherine, the great Sienese heroine at San Domenico, seems to me the author's finest accomplishment. His frescoes have all the same almost appealing evasion of difficulty, and a kind of mild melancholy which I'm inclined to think the sincerest part of them, for it strikes me as practically the artist's depressed suspicion of his own want of force. Once he determined, however, that if he couldn't be strong, he would make capital of his weakness and painted the Christ bound to the column of the academy. Here he got much nearer, and I have no doubt mixed his colours with his tears. But the result can't be better described than by saying that it is pictorially the first of the modern Christs. Unfortunately, it hasn't been the last. The main strength of Sienese art went possibly into the erection of the cathedral, and even here the strength is not of the greatest strain. If, however, there are more interesting temples in Italy, there are few more richly and variously scenic and splendid, the comparative meagerness of the architectural idea being overlaid by a marvellous wealth of ingenious detail. Opposite the church, with the dull old archbishop's palace on one side and a dismantled residence of the late Grand Duke of Tuscany on the other, is an ancient hospital with a big stone bench running all along its front. Here I have sat a while every morning for a week, like a philosophic convalescent, watching the florid façade of the cathedral glitter against the deep blue sky. It has been lavishly restored of late years, and the fresh white marble of the densely clustered pinnacles and statues and beasts and flowers flashes in the sunshine like a mosaic of jewels. There is more of this goldsmith's work in stone than I can remember or describe. It is piled up over three great doors with immense margins of exquisite decorative sculpture, still in the ancient cream-coloured marble, and beneath three sharp pediments embossed with images relieved against red marble and tipped with golden mosaics. It is in the highest degree fantastic and luxuriant. It is on the whole very lovely. As a triumph of the many-hued, 
it prepares you for the interior, where the same party-coloured splendour is endlessly at play, a confident complication of harmonies and contrasts, and of the minor structural refinements and braveries. The internal surface is mainly wrought in alternate courses of black and white marble, but as the latter has been dimmed by the centuries to a fine mild brown, places all a concert of relieved and dispersed glooms. Save for Pinturicchio's brilliant frescoes in the sacristy, there are no pictures to speak of, but the pavement is covered with many elaborate designs in black and white mosaic after cartoons by Beccafumi. The patient skill of these compositions makes them a rare piece of decoration. Yet even here the friend whom I lately quoted rejects this overripe fruit of the Sienese school. The designs are nonsensical, he declares, and all his admiration is for the cunning artisans who have imitated the hatchings and shadings and hair strokes of the pencil by the finest curves of inserted black stone. But the true romance of handiwork at Siena is to be seen in the wondrous stalls of the choir, under the coloured light of the great wheel window. Wood carving has ever been a cherished craft of the place, and the best masters of the art during the 15th century lavished themselves on this prodigious task. It is the frost work on one's window panes interpreted in polished oak. It would be hard to find doubtless a more moving illustration of the peculiar patience, the sacred candour of the great time. Into such artistry as this, the author seems to put more of his personal substance than into any other. He has to wrestle not only with his subject, but with his material. He is richly fortunate when his subject is charming, when his devices, inventions and fantasies spring lightly to his hand, for in the material itself, after age and use have ripened and polished and darkened it to the richness of ebony and to a greater warmth, there is something surpassingly delectable and venerable. Wander behind the altar at Siena when the chanting is over and the incense is faded, and look well at the stalls of the Verilli. 1873. 2. I leave the impression noted in the foregoing pages to tell its own small story, but have it on my conscience to wonder in this connection, quite candidly and publicly, and by way of due penance, at the scantness of such first fruits of my sensibility. I was to see Sienna repeatedly in the years to follow. I was to know her better, and I would say that I was to do her an ampler justice. Didn't that remark seem to reflect a little on my earlier poor judgment? This judgment strikes me today as having fallen short. True, as it may be, that I find ever a value, or at least an interest, even in the moods and humours and lapses of any brooding, musing, or fantasticating observer, to whom the finer sense of things is, on the whole, not closed. 
if he has on a given occasion nodded or stumbled or strayed this fact by itself speaks to me of him speaks to me that is of his faculty and his idiosyncrasies and i care nothing for the application of his faculty unless it be first of all in itself interesting which may serve as my reply to any objection here breaking out on the ground that if a spectator's languors are evidence of a sort about that personage they scarce evidence about the case before him at least if the case be important i let my perhaps rather weak expression of the sense of siena stand at any rate for the sake of what i myself read into it but i should like to amplify it by other memories and would do so eagerly if i might here enjoy the space the difficulty for these rectifications is that if the early vision has failed of competence or of full felicity if initiation has thus been slow so with renewals and extensions so with the larger experiences one hindrance is exchanged for another there is quite such a possibility as having lived into a relation too much to be able to make a statement of it i remember on one occasion arriving very late of a summer night after an almost unbroken run from london and the note of that approach i was the only person alighting at the station below the great hill of the little fortress city under whose at once frowning and gaping gate i must have passed in the warm darkness and the absolute stillness very much after the felt fashion of a person of importance about to be enormously incarcerated gives me for preservation thus belated the pitch as i may call it at various times though always at one season of an almost systematised aesthetic use of the place it wasn't to be denied that the immensely better accommodations instituted by the multiplying though alas more bustling years had to be recognised as supplying a basis comparatively prosaic if one would to that luxury no sooner have i written which words however then I find myself adding that one wouldn't, that one doesn't, doesn't, that is, consent now, to regard the then new hotel, pretty old indeed by this time, as anything but an aid to a free play of perception. The strong and rank old Arme d'Inglaterra in the darkest street has passed away, but its ancient rival, the Acquanera, put forth claims to modernisation and the grand hotel the still fresher flower of modernity near the gate by which you enter from the station takes on to my present remembrance a mellowness as of all sorts of comfort cleanliness and kindness the particular facts those of the visit i began hereby alluding to and those of still others at all events inveterately made in june or early in july enter together in a fusion as of hot golden-brown objects 
seen through the practicable crevices of shutters drawn upon high, cool, darkened rooms, where the scheme of the scene involved longish days of quiet work, with late afternoon emergence and contemplation, waiting on the better or the worse conscience. I thus associate the compact world of the admirable hilltop, the world of a predominant golden brown, with a general invocation of sensibility and fancy, and think of myself as going forth into the lingering light of summer evenings, all attuned to intensity of the idea of compositional beauty, or in other words, freely speaking, to the question of colour, to intensity of picture. To communicate with Siena in this charming way was thus, I admit, to have no great margin for the prosecution of inquiries, but I'm not sure that it wasn't little by little to feel the whole combination of elements better than by an exemplary method, and this from beginning to end of the scale. More of the elements indeed for memory hang about the days that were ushered in by that straight flight from the north than about any other series, which partly doubtless, but because of my having then stayed longest. I specify it at all events for fond reminiscence as the year, the only year, at which I was present at the Panio, the earlier one, the series of furious horse races between elected representatives of different quarters of the town taking place toward the end of June as the second and still more characteristic exhibition of the same sort is appointed to the month of August. A spectacle that I am far from speaking of as the finest flower of my old, and perhaps even a little faded, cluster of impressions, but which smudges that special sojourn as with the big thumb-mark of a slightly soiled and decidedly ensanguined hand. For really, after all, the great, loud, gaudy, romp or heated frolic, simulating ferocity, if not achieving it, that is the annual pride of the town, was not intrinsically, to my view, extraordinarily impressive, in spite of its bristling with all due testimony to the passionate Italian clutch of any pretext for costume and attitude and utterance, for mumming and masquerading and raucously representing. The vast, cheap vividness rather somehow refines itself, and the swarm and hubbub of the immense square melt to the uplifted sense of a very high-placed balcony of the overhanging Kiji Palace, where everything was superseded but the intenser passages across the ages of the great renaissance tradition of architecture and the infinite sweetness of the waning golden day the palio indubitably was clear and the more so for quite monopolizing at siena the note of crudity and much of it demanded doubtless of one's patience a due respect for the long local continuity of such things. It drops into its humid position, however, in any retrospective command of the many brave aspects of the religious place. 
not that I am pretending here, even for rectification, to take these at all in turn. I only go on a little with my rueful glance at the marked gaps left in my original report of sympathies entertained. I bow my head, for instance, to the mystery of my not having mentioned that the coolest and freshest flower of the day was ever that of one's constant renewal of a charmed homage to Pintoricchio, coolest and freshest and signally youngest and most matutinal, as distinguished from merely primitive or crepuscular of painters in the library or sacristy of the cathedral. Did I always find time before work to spend half an hour of immersion under that splendid roof, in the clearest and tenderest, the very cleanest and straightest, as it masters our envious credulity of all storied fresco worlds. This wondrous apartment, a monument in itself to the ancient pride and power of the church, and which contains an unsurpassed treasure of gloriously illuminated missals, psalters, and other vast parchment folios, almost each of whose successive leaves gives the impression of rubies, sapphires, and emeralds set in gold, and practically embedded in the page, offers thus to view, after a fashion splendidly sustained, a pictorial record of the career of Pope Pius II, Aeneas Silvius of the Siena Piccolomini, who gave him for an immediate successor a second of their name, most profanely literary of pontiffs, and last of the would-be crusaders, whose adventures and achievements under Pintoricchio's brush smoothed themselves out for us very much to the tune of the, quote, stories, unquote, told by some fine old man of the world at the restful end of his life, to the cluster of his grandchildren. The end of Aeneas Silvius was not restful. He died at Ancona in troublous times, preaching war and attempting to make it against the then terrific Turk. But over no great worldly personal legend among those men of arduous affairs, arches a fairer, lighter or more pacific memorial vault and the shining libreria of Siena. I seem to remember having it and its unfrequented enclosing precinct so often all to myself, that I must indeed mostly have resorted to it for a prompt benediction on the day. Like no other strong solicitation among artistic appeals to which one may compare it up and down the whole wonderful country, is the felt neighbouring presence of the overwrought cathedral in its little, proud, possessive town. You may so often feel by the week at a time that it stands there really for your own personal enjoyment, your romantic convenience, your small, wanton, aesthetic use. In such a light shines for me at all events under such an accumulation and a complication of tone, flushes and darkens and richly recedes for me across the years, the treasure-house of many-coloured marbles in the untrodden 
the drowsy, empty, sea square. One could positively do, in the free exercise of any responsible fancy or luxurious taste, what one would with it. But that proposition holds true, after all, for almost any mild pastime of the incurable student of loose meanings and stray relics and odd references and demonologies in an Italian hill city bronzed and seasoned by the ages. I ought perhaps for justification of the right to talk to have plunged into the Siena archives, of which on one occasion a kindly custodian gave me, in rather dusty and stuffy conditions, as the incident vaguely comes back to me, a glimpse. It was like a moment's stand at the mouth of a deep, dark mine. I didn't descend into the pit. I did, instead of this, a much idler and easier thing. I simply went every afternoon, my stint of work over, I like to recall, for amusing stroll upon the Litza. The Litza, which had its own unpretentious but quite insidious art of meeting the lover of old stories halfway. The great and subtle thing, if you are not a strenuous specialist, in places of heavily charged historic consciousness, is to profit by the sense of that consciousness, or in other words, to cultivate a relation with the oracle after the fashion that suits yourself, so that if the general aftertaste of experience, experience at large, the fine distilled essence of the matter seems to breathe in such a case from the very stones and to make a thick, strong liquor of the very air, you may thus gather as you pass what is most to your purpose. It is more the indestructible mixture of lived things with its concentrated lingering odour than any interminable list of numbered chapters and verses. Chapters and verses literally scanned refuse coincidence mostly with the divisional properties of your own pile of manuscript, which is but another way of saying, in short, that if the Litza is a mere fortified promontory of the great Sienese hill, serving at once as a stronghold for the present military garrison, and as a planted and benched and banned standard walk and recreation ground for the citizens, so I could never, toward close of day, either have enough of it, or yet feel the vaguest saunterings there to be vain. They were vague, with the qualification always of that finer massing, as one wanders off, of the bronzed and seasoned element, the huge rock pedestal, the bravery of walls and gates and towers and palaces and loudly asserted dominion. And then of that pervaded or mildly infested air in which one feels the experience of the ages, of which I just spoke, to be exquisitely in solution. And lastly of the wide, strange, sad, beautiful horizon, a rim of far mountains that always pictured for the Nina on old rubbed and smoothed parapets at the sunset hour, a country not exactly blighted or deserted, but 
that had had its life on an immense scale and had gone with all its memories and relics into rather austere in fact into almost grim and misanthropic retirement this was a manner and a mood at any rate in all the land that favoured in the late afternoons the divinest landscape blues and purples not to speak of its favouring still more my practical contention that the whole guarded headland in question with the immense ramparts of golden brown and red that dropped into vineyards and orchards and cornfields and all the rustic elegance of the tuscan padera was knitting for me a chain of unforgettable hours to the justice of which claim that these divagations testify it wasn't however that one mightn't without disloyalty to that scheme of profit seek impressions further afield though indeed i may best say of such a matter as the long pilgrimage to the pictured convent of monte oliveto that it but played on the same fine chords as the overhanging the far-gazing litza what it came to was that one simply put to the friendly test as it were the mood and manner of the country this remembrance is precious but the demonstration of that sense as of a great heaving region stilled by some final shock and returning thoughtfully in fact tragically on itself couldn't have been more pointed the long-drawn rural road i refer to stretching over hill and dale into which i devoted the whole of the longest day of the year i was in a small single horse conveyance of which i had already made appreciative use and with a driver as disposed as myself ever to sacrifice speed to contemplation is doubtless familiar now with the rush of the motor-car the thought of whose free dealings with the solitude of monte oliveto makes me a little ruefully reconsider i confess the spirit in which i have elsewhere in these pages on behalf of the lust the landscape lust of the eyes acknowledged our general increasing debt to that vehicle for that we met nothing whatever as i seem at this distance of time to recall while we gently trotted and trotted through the splendid summer hours and a dry desolation that yet somehow smiled and smiled was part of the charm and the intimacy of the whole impression the impression that culminated at last before the great cloistered square lonely bleak and stricken in an almost aching vision more frequent in the italy of to-day than anywhere in the world of the uncalculated waste of a myriad forms of piety forces of labour beautiful fruits of genius however one gaped above all things for the impression and what one mainly asked was that it should be strong of its kind that was the case i think i could but feel at every moment of the couple of hours i spent in the vast cold empty shell out of which the benedictine brotherhood sheltered there for ages had lately been turned by the strong arm of the secular state 
there was but one good brother left, a very lean and tough survivor, a dusky, elderly, friendly abate of an indescribable type and a perfect manner, of whom I think I felt immediately thereafter that I should have liked to say much. But as to whom, I must have yielded to the fact that ingenious and vivid commemoration was even then in store for him. Literary portraiture had marked him for its own, and in the short story of Un Saint, one of the most finished of contemporary French nouvelles, the art and the sympathy of Monsieur Paul Bourget preserve his interesting image. He figures in the beautiful tale, the abate of a desolate cloister, and of those comparatively quiet years, as a clean, clear type of sainthood. A circumstance this in itself, to cause a fond analyst of other than Latin race, model and painter in this case, having their Latinism so strongly in common, almost endlessly to meditate. Oh, the unutterable differences in any scheme or estimate of physiognomic values, in any range of sensibility to expressional association among observers of different, of inevitably more or less opposed, traditional and, quote, racial, unquote, points of view. One has heard convinced Latins, or at least I had, speak of situations of trust and intimacy in which they couldn't have endured near them a Protestant, or, as who should say, for instance, an Anglo-Saxon. But I was to remember my own private attempt to measure such a change of sensibility as might have permitted the prolonged, close approach of the dear, dingy, half-starved, very possibly all-heroic, and quite ideally urbane abate. The depth upon depth of things, the cloud upon cloud of associations on one side and the other, that would have had to change first. To which I may add, nevertheless, that since one ever supremely invoked intensity of impression and abundance of character, I feasted my fill of it at Monte Oliveto. And for that matter, this would have constituted my sole refreshment in the vast icy void of the blighted refectory if I hadn't bethought myself of bringing with me a scrap of food. Too scantily apportioned, I recollect, very scantily indeed, since my coquero was to share with me by my purveyor at Siena. A tragic, even if so tenderly tragic, entertainer had nothing to give us. But the immemorial cold of the enormous monastic interior in which we smilingly fasted would doubtless not have had for me without that such a wealth of reference. I was to have, quote, liked, unquote, the whole adventure, so I must somehow have liked that, by which remark I am recalled to the special treasure of the deserted temple, those extraordinarily strong and brave frescoes of Luca Sinelli and Sodoma that adorn in admirable condition several stretches of cloister wall. These creations, in a manner, took care of themselves. 
aided by the blue of the sky above the cloister court. They glowed, they insistently lived. I remember the frigid prowl through all the rest of the bareness, including that of the big dishonoured church, and that even of the abate's abysmally resigned testimony to his mere human and personal situation. And then such a force of contrast and effect of relief, the great sheltered sun flares and colour patches of scenic composition and design, where a couple of hands centuries ago turned to dust, had so wrought the defiant miracle of life and beauty that the effect is of a garden blooming among ruins. Discredited somehow, since they all would the destroyers themselves, the ancient piety, the general spirit and intention, but still bright and assured and sublime, practically enviably immortal. The other, the still subtler, the all aesthetic good faith. 1909, end of section 27.